This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Something by Hilaire Belloc Of the various sketches in this book, some appear for the first time. Others are reprinted by courtesy of the proprietors and editors of the Westminster Gazette, the Clarion, the English Review, the Morning Post, and the Manchester Guardian, in which papers they appeared. Chapter 1 A Plea for the Simpler Drama It is with the drama as with plastic art and many other things. The plain man feels that he has a right to put in his word but he is rather afraid that the art is beyond him, and he is frightened by technicalities. After all, these things are made for the plain man, and his applause, in the long run, and duly tested by time, is the main reward of the dramatist, as of the painter or the sculptor. But if he is sensible, he knows that his immediate judgment will be crude. However, here goes. The plain man sees that the drama of his time has gradually passed from one phase to another of complexity in thought, coupled with simplicity of incident, and it occurs to him that just one further step is needed to make something final in British art. We seem to be just on the threshold of something which would give Englishmen, in the twentieth century, something of the fullness that characterized the Elizabethans. But somehow or other our dramatists hesitate to cross that threshold. It cannot be that their powers are lacking. It can only be some timidity or self-torture, which is the business of the plain man to exercise. If I may make a suggestion in this essay to the masters of the craft, it is that the goal of the completely modern thing can best be reached by taking the very simplest themes of daily life, things within the experience of the ordinary citizen, and presenting them in the majestic traditional cadence of that peculiarly English medium, blank verse. As to the themes taken from the everyday life of middle-class men and women like ourselves, it is true that the lives of the wealthy afford more incident, and that there is a sort of glamour about them which is difficult to resist. But with a sufficient subtlety the whole poignancy of the lives led by those who suffer neither the tragedies of the poor nor the exultation of the rich, can be exactly etched. The life of the professional middle class, of the businessman, the dentist, the moneylender, the publisher, the spiritual pastor, nay, of the playwright himself, might be put upon the stage. And what a vital change would be here! Here would be a kind of literary drama of which the interest would lie in the struggle, the pain, the danger, and the triumph, which we all so intimately know and next in the satisfaction, which we now do not have, of the mimic sense, the satisfaction of seeing a mirror held up to a whole audience composed of the very class represented on the stage. I have seen men of wealth and position absorbed in place concerning gambling, cruelty, cheating, drunkenness, and other sports, and so absorbed chiefly because they saw themselves depicted upon the stage. And I ask, would not my fellows and myself largely remunerate a similar opportunity? For though the rich go repeatedly to the play, 
yet the middle class are so much more numerous that the difference is amply compensated. I think we may take it, then, that an experiment in the depicting of a professional life would even from the financial standpoint be workable, and I would even go so far as to suggest that a play could be written in which there did not appear one single lord, general, member of parliament, baronet, professional beauty, usurer, upon a large scale at least, or cabinet minister. The thing is possible, and I can modestly say that in the little effort appended as an example to these lines, it has been done successfully. But here must be mentioned the second point in my thesis. I could never have achieved what I have here achieved in dramatic art, had I not harked back to the great tradition of the English heroic decasyllable, such as our Shakespeare has handled with so felicitous an effect. The play which I have called The Crisis, and which I designed to be the model of the school founded by these present advices, is specially designed for acting with the sumptuous accessories at the disposal of a great manager, such as Mr. Now Sir Henry Beerbohm Tree, or for the narrower circumstances of the suburban drawing-room. There is perhaps but one character which needs any long rehearsal, that of the dog Fido, and luckily this is one which can easily be supplied by mechanical means, as by the use of a toy dog of sufficient size which barks upon the pressure of a pneumatic attachment. In connection with this character I would have the student note that I have introduced into the dog's part, just before the curtain, a whole line of dactyls. I hope the hint will not be wasted. Such exceptions relieve the monotony of our English trochees. But, saving in this instance, I have confined myself throughout to the example of William Shakespeare, surely the best master for those who, as I fondly hope, will follow me in the regeneration of the British stage. The Crisis. Place, the study at the vicarage. Time, 9.15 p.m. Dramatis Persona. The Reverend Archibald Haverton, the vicar. Mrs. Haverton, his wife. Miss Grosvenor, a governess. Matilda, a maid. Fido, a dog. Hermione Colby, daughter of a cottager who takes in washing. Miss Harvey, a guest, cousin to Mrs. Haverton a Unitarian. The Reverend Archibald Haverton is reading the Standard by a lamp with a green shade. Mrs. Haverton is hemming a towel. Fido is asleep on the rug. On the walls are three engravings from Landseer, a portrait of Her Late Majesty Queen Victoria, a bookcase with books in it, and a looking-glass. Mrs. Haverton my dear, I hope I do not interrupt you. Helen has given notice. Reverend A. Haverton, looking up suddenly. Notice? Who, Helen? Given notice? Bless my soul. A pause. I never thought that she would give us notice. Ponders and frowns. Mrs. Haverton. Well, but she has, and now the question is, what shall we do to find another cook? Servants are very difficult to get size especially to come into the country to such a place as this size no wonder either oh mercy when one comes to think of it one cannot blame them size heaven only knows i try to do my duty sighs profoundly 
Revenue Haverton, uneasily. Well, my dear, I cannot make preferment. Front doorbell rings. Fido. Bow, wow, wow. Reverend A. Haverton, patting him to soothe him. There, Fido, there. Fido. Wow, wow. Reverend A. Haverton. Good dog there. Fido. Wow, wow, wow. Reverend A. Haverton. Very nervous. There. Fido. Wow, wow. Reverend A. Haverton in an agony. Good dog. Fido. Wow, wow, wow. Wow, 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 wow. Mrs. Haverton very excited. Oh, Lord, he'll wake the children. Reverend A. Haverton exploding. How often have I told you, Dorothy, not to exclaim, Good Lord, apart from manners which have their own importance, blasphemy, and I regard the phrase as blasphemous, cannot... Mrs. Haverton, uneasily. Oh, very well, oh, very well, exploding in her turn. Upon my soul you are intolerable. She jumps up and makes for the door. Before she gets to it there is a knock, and Matilda enters. Matilda. Please, ma'am. It's only Mrs. Colby's daughter, to say the washing shall be sent tomorrow, and would you check the list again to see, because she thinks she never had two collars of what you sent, but only five, because you marked it seven, and Miss Colby says there must be some mistake. Reverend A. Haverton pompously. I will attend to it. Miss Haverton, whispering angrily. How can you, Archibald? You haven't got the ghost of an idea about the washing. Sit down, he does so, to Matilda. Send the girl in here. Mrs. Haverton sits down in a fume. Reverend A. Haverton, I think. Mrs. Haverton, snapping. I don't care what you think, groans. Oh, dear, I'm nearly off my head. Enter Miss Colby. She bobs. Good evening, ma'am. Miss Haverton by way of reply. Now then, what's all this fuss about the washing? Miss Colby. Please, ma'am, the seven colors what you sent. I meant the seven what was marked was wrong, and Mother says you'd have had the washing, only there weren't but five, and would you mind? Mrs. Haverton sharply. I cannot understand a word you say. Go back and tell your mother there were seven. If she sends home five, she pays for two. So there snorts miss colby sobbing i'm sure i miss haverton savagely don't stand snuffling there go back and tell your mother what i say impudent hussy exit miss colby sobbing a pause reverend a haverton with assumed authority to return to helen tell me concisely and without complaints why did she give you notice a handbell rings in the passage Fido. Bow, wow, wow. Reverend A. Haverton, giving him a smart kick. Shrimp. Fido, howling. Penning, 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 penning. Reverend A. Haverton, controlling himself as well as he can, goes to the door and calls to the passage. Miss Grosvenor, louder. Miss Grosvenor, was that bell for prayers? Was that the bell for prayers? Louder. Miss Grosvenor! Miss Grosvenor! Tapping with his foot. Oh! Miss Grosvenor, sweetly and far off. 
Is that Mr. Haverton? Reverend A. Haverton. Yes, 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 yes. Was was that the bell for prayers? Miss Grosvenor again. Yes, that it, Mr. Haverton. Oh, yes, I think it is. I'll see. I'll ask Matilda. A pause during which the Reverend A. Haverton is in a qualm. Miss Grosvenor rustling back. Matilda says it is the bell for prayers. They all come filing into the study and arranging the chairs. As they enter, Miss Harvey, the guest, treads heavily on Matilda's foot. Miss Harvey. Matilda, was that you? I beg your pardon. Matilda, limping. Granted, I'm sure, Miss. Mrs. Haverton, whispering to the Reverend A. Haverton. Do not read the creed. Miss Harvey is a Unitarian. I suggest some simple form of prayer, some heartfelt word of charity and peace, common to every Christian. Reverend A. Haverton, in a deep voice, Let us pray. Curtain End of chapter 1